It's Friday, April 1st. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Maryland's congressional redistricting map is in limbo as legal challenges remain. The race is on in Annapolis to get bills to Governor Hogan's desk in the last full week of the 2022 legislative session. We'll give you the rundown. Plus, hospitals get some economic relief but continue to face a workforce shortage. And a CDC study shows just how pervasive poor mental health has become among teenagers during the pandemic. It's the Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The status of Maryland's new congressional redistricting map remains up in the air after a two-hour hearing this morning in Anne Arundel Circuit Court. Judge Lynn Battaglia said she couldn't rule on the redrawn map for two reasons. Attorney General Brian Frosch has appealed her decision that the original map was an extreme gerrymander. That has left her March 25th order to redraw the map in limbo until the Court of Appeals rules. In addition, Governor Larry Hogan hasn't yet signed or vetoed the redrawn map the General Assembly adopted Wednesday. In our Annapolis roundup, a group of gun safety advocates called on Governor Larry Hogan today to sign the bill that bans ghost guns, those untraceable firearms. The Senate sent the bill to his desk this week. WIPR's Joel McCord reports. In a morning news conference, John Feinblatt, the president of Every Town for Gun Safety, said signing the bill would cement Maryland's reputation as a leader in the fight to prevent gun violence. Ghost guns, he said, are the biggest new threat he's seen in 15 years of working on gun safety. Put simply, ghost guns are a dream come true for criminals and extremists and a nightmare for anyone trying to stop. Melissa Ladd, leader of the Maryland chapter of Moms Demand Action, said the measure would keep those weapons out of the hands of those that shouldn't have them. We can't turn back. We can't drag our feet. We can't continue to allow ghost guns to remain unchecked. Governor Hogan's office routinely declines to comment on whether he will veto or sign legislation. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Two bills aimed at easing the financial load of baby and toddler care that are part of a larger budget booster tax cut package passed the Senate unanimously Thursday. WYPR's Callan Tanzel Suddeth has more. Under one bill, baby bottles and related accessories and infant car seats will be exempt from Maryland's 6% sales and use tax. Under the other, diapers, diaper cream, and baby wipes will be exempt from the tax. During a committee hearing last month, delegates Dana Jones of Anne Arundel County and Brian Crosby of St. Mary's County said constituents' concerns over the cost of baby products during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic inspired the bills. Legislation providing similar exemptions has passed in states such as Connecticut, Florida, and Minnesota. If the bills are signed by Governor Larry Hogan, they will take effect July 1st and are expected to cost the state nearly $10 million total during the 2023 fiscal year. For WYPR News, I'm Callan Tanselsetta. We'll have more from Callan and Joel later on lawmakers' rush to get bills passed as this legislative session winds down. The state's positivity rate has increased over this week to 1.6 percent, according to the state health department. It's an increase of about 0.15 from this time last week. 148 people are hospitalized. That's two more patients than reported yesterday. There are more than 400 new cases, adding to the more than 1 million coronavirus cases to date. COVID-19 has so far claimed the lives of more than 14,000 Marylanders. 
Maryland hospitals continue to grapple with an unprecedented workforce shortage. And while hospitals have received tens of millions of dollars to address the issue, there's still a long road ahead. Governor Larry Hogan's latest supplemental budget includes an additional $50 million for the hospital workforce. Bob Atlas, president and CEO of the Maryland Hospital Association, says the money will make a difference, but it doesn't mean a full recovery. I hate to say it isn't a lot in the grand scheme of things. Atlas estimates that one in four nursing positions is vacant, and one in five is vacant for all hospital roles. He says those who stayed behind have been hanging on. The last surge did not help. For many of our hospital workers, it might have been what you call the last straw. Experts have said Omicron BA2 likely won't cause a surge in the U.S. Atlas says it likely won't be something hospitals haven't weathered already. The Baltimore County Public Schools plans to offer a virtual learning program for a second year beginning this fall. WYPR's John Lee reports a survey of parents whose children are in the program found most are satisfied with how it's been going. The program was put in place this year for those families that did not want to risk COVID-19 in school buildings. But nearly 70% of the parents surveyed said they wanted to continue even when COVID transmission rates are low. Only 3% of parents surveyed have a negative view of virtual learning. Doug Elmendorf, Executive Director of Academic Programs for BCPS, says if the COVID numbers continue to improve, they want those students who have been struggling with virtual learning to be back in the classroom. We want to get to the point where we are strongly encouraging, potentially even requiring a student to go back to in-person learning for their best interest. That in-class requirement would not include students with a medical condition that puts them at risk. A second year of virtual learning will only be offered to the 3,000 students currently enrolled in the program. John Lee, WIPR News. Baltimore County Executive John Yashevsky will introduce legislation next week to establish a police accountability board. The civilian panel will be charged with working with law enforcement and county officials to make recommendations to improve policing. The board is required by the Maryland Police Accountability Act of 2021. A global digital diagnostic company that has played a major role in the fight against COVID-19 is building a manufacturing plant in Frederick County. Illum was the first company to make at-home rapid COVID-19 test kits. Governor Larry Hogan says the manufacturing plant will be Illum's first one in the U.S. and is expected to employ around 1,500 people. Governor Hogan has jumped party lines and endorsed a Democrat. Hogan endorsed former city, state and federal prosecutor Thoreau Vignaraja for Baltimore State's attorney. Hogan, who is in his last term in office, has had a fractious relationship with incumbent state's attorney Marilyn Mosby. She's facing charges of lying on two mortgage applications to buy vacation homes in Florida and has not yet officially filed for re-election to a third term. Not the news you wanted to hear heading into the weekend. Gas prices across Maryland are continuing to climb. The latest data from AAA shows the statewide average for a gallon of unleaded is around $3.80. Worcester, Queen Anne's, Washington and Allegheny counties are reporting the cheapest spots to fill up. On the upside, Maryland is nearly 50 cents below the national average.
It's not news that the pandemic has been enormously challenging for youth mental health. But a new study by the CDC puts into data just how pervasive mental health threats have been among high school students during COVID. And researchers say the data echoes a cry for help. More than one-third of students reported stress, anxiety or depression. 44% said that in the previous year, they felt persistently sad and hopeless and unable to engage in regular activities. Dr. Jonathan Merman is the director of the CDC National Center for HIV, Viral Hepatitis, STD and TB Prevention. It's the CDC's lead center for monitoring and addressing school-based health. Dr. Merman called the data deeply troubling. So worsening mental health of youth was a growing public health issue even before America had ever heard of COVID-19. Data from high school students across the country already signaled the problem, with more students saying they felt sad and hopeless and more students attempting suicide in the decade prior to the pandemic. More than half of high school students reported experiencing emotional abuse by a parent or adult in the house. Emotional abuse here includes swearing at, insulting, or putting down a student. 11% experienced physical abuse. Dr. Kathleen Ethier, the director of the CDC's Division of Adolescent and School Health, says the study doesn't confirm whether there was an increase of abuse during lockdown. I think what it does point out, however, is what we have to do now in order to support the youth who have experienced abuse in their homes. Researchers also asked students if they had ever experienced racism at school before or during the pandemic. Dr. Ethier said it was the first time they asked students that question. The number, more than one-third of students have experienced racism. The highest reports were among Asian students at 64 percent, black students at 55 percent, and students of multiple races also at 55 percent. As many of you know, CDC declared racism a serious public threat, and our data helped show us why. Students who experienced racism at school were more likely to report they also experienced poor mental health than those who had not experienced racism. LGBTQ and female youth also reported greater levels of poor mental health. Dr. Ethier says their likelihood of attempting suicide was much higher and that the majority of them also reported emotional abuse at home. School policies and practices designed to support LGBTQ youth lead to improvements in mental health and suicide-related behaviors. When schools are less toxic for youth and increased risk for severe outcomes, schools are less toxic for everyone. Dr. Ethier says improving the mental health of students means making sure they feel connected and welcome at school. Dr. Merman says schools cannot fight this fight alone. We need to do all we can to support educational institutions and their effective policies. The findings we presented today highlight complex issues, however, and kids, parents, and schools cannot address them alone. The impact of COVID-19 will be felt for many years with devastating consequences. You can find the full study on the CDC's website at cdc.gov. State Senate agreed Thursday to accept the heavily amended version of a bill to sharply reduce Maryland's carbon footprint passed earlier this week by the House of Delegates. But as WYPR's Joel McCord reports, 
not without complaints about some of those amendments. It was Senator Steve Hershey, an Upper Eastern Shore Republican, who first complained about a section the House added that creates a pilot program to allow utilities to help county school systems buy electric or zero-admission school buses, then use the electricity stored in their enormous batteries during times of peak demand when the buses are idle. He said he worried about the costs. So whatever equipment is needed um, to charge these buses, and any type of facilities that are necessary, they could take all of that, build that into a rate case, go before the Public Service Commission, this Public Service Commission then could increase rates for everybody within that service territory. Senator Malcolm Augustine, a Prince George's Democrat, worried that some counties might be ready for such a program, but those that aren't might be forced to help pay for the buses of another county. Because the rate payers, those who are trying to pay their, uh, pay for their medicine, are going to be asked to pay for these school buses for another jurisdiction. That brought a sharp rebuke from Senator Ben Kramer, a Montgomery County Democrat. But what you're witnessing, colleagues, is parochialism rearing its very ugly head. Montgomery County already has such a program, he said, and the original bill the Senate passed had much the same language, but not the specifics of how to do it that the House amendments added. We are the state of Maryland. Our decision process does not end at jurisdictional boundaries. If that were the attitude that we take on every bill we vote out of here, Nothing would ever get passed. But that amendment and others had gutted the bill, Hershey argued. But that's the question on her. Are we going to you know, sit back and, and just accept these House amendments because we want to put through a bill that says Climate Solutions Act of 2022? Brian Simonier, the Senate Republican leader, said there are provisions he could vote for in a single bill, but not in such a far-reaching measure that he argued would cost too much and not solve the problem of global warming. Lawmakers should be putting their energy into steps at the national and global level, he said. So we can have real impact, so we can really save the planet, and not focus on being a role model that was brought up on this floor from your side of the aisle saying it's a good thing to be role models, but at what expense? Senator Paul Pinsky, a Prince George's Democrat and the bill's sponsor, said those arguments were giving him an Alice in Wonderland moment. Those who voted against the original bill and won't vote for the bill in any form were complaining about the House's amendments. We can sit on the sideline and watch history, or we can help shape history. You know, we can tell our children and grandchildren we took steps. We didn't stay silent. We didn't put our head in the sand. That's getting more water. Pinsky has said previously he was disappointed by some of the House amendments, but that it remained a good bill. He insisted the core of the bill, the goal for carbon neutrality by 2045, remains intact. It also contains a call for emission reductions in large buildings, a green bank to help pay for environmental projects, and provisions requiring the transition of state vehicles and school buses from internal combustion engines to electric or zero emissions vehicles. It also creates a climate core for young people to work on projects in communities disproportionately affected by climate change. This bill takes many, many steps. So the question before us is, do we want to help shape our future, our history of our state and our planet, or do we want to sit on the sidelines silent? The bill heads to Governor Larry Hogan's desk. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News.
the General Assembly about to enter its final full week in session, legislators are rushing to pass some of the more contentious bills in time to override potential vetoes from Governor Larry Hogan. WYPR's Callan Tanzel Suddeth has more. By getting bills to the governor today, lawmakers have a chance for veto overrides before the session ends. Earlier today, the Senate passed bills legalizing the use and possession of small amounts of recreational cannabis after a brief debate. One was a House bill that would add a referendum on recreational marijuana to the ballot for the November election. The debate boiled down to some lawmakers questioning whether marijuana use actually needs to be in the Constitution, and if so, why? I think a lot of the things that we do down here help the citizens of Maryland each day, but why is this so important that it's in the Constitution of Maryland? That was Republican Senator Stephen Hershey, who represents Kent, Queen Anne's, Caroline, and Cecil counties. He pointed out legalizing marijuana has been debated in the Senate in previous sessions, but has not been proposed as an amendment. But Montgomery County Democrat Senator Brian Feldman argued Maryland is more limited than other states in how it can get the public's input on legislation. He said by making it a referendum, the General Assembly can give more of a voice to the people. In order for us to have the input of the citizens of our state, this is the mechanism available for the legislature to do it. So, you know, we don't have maybe the tools of some of these other states to make it a little easier. But this is actually quite common uh, to let the folks of our state weigh in before we take the next step. Lawmakers also passed an omnibus bill that would, in addition to adding a referendum on use, set up ways to tax and regulate marijuana and offer various forms of relief to people who have been charged with crimes related to possession and use. It will be in the House of Delegates next week. The Senate also yesterday passed a bill along party lines that will establish a state paid family and medical leave insurance program. It would guarantee employees between 12 and 24 weeks of leave during illness or a family emergency. Both employers and employees would contribute to a fund that would pay employees up to 90% of their income during an absence. Similar programs have been established in nine states and Washington, D.C. Anne Arundel County Republican leader Senator Brian Simonaire argued the bill, which was amended in the House, doesn't offer concrete information on how much the initiative will cost. It sounds like the committee doesn't have an idea of how many employees that will impact or employers, thus not knowing how much money we're losing in this plan. But bill sponsor Democrat Senator Antonio Hayes of Baltimore said legislative analysts have in fact determined the cost will be low even for small businesses. So employers that have under 14 employees will not be required to make a contribution to the program, but the employees will have the opportunity to participate in the program, obviously as an employee benefit. And at the end of the day, we're talking about $1.52. The legislation heads to Governor Larry Hogan's desk. He has six days to veto it before it automatically becomes law. The last day of the 2022 General Assembly is Monday, April 11th. For WYPR News, I'm Callan Tansel-Suddeth. cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number 410-235-6060. 
We've also got a button on the WYPR app, so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose Comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410-235-6060. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Callan tenzel Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Kremple, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Urban. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.